This is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 48, Passing Through Gethsemane. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Unlike last time, where we had a day in the strife and nobody could remember anything that happened. I, Except I Erica, feeling... strangely enough. Okay. Yes, <laughs> for once, the universe flipped. Um, but I don't think very many people have trouble remembering passing through Gethsemane. Its a plot is uh, a story that most people who view it remember very, very well for a myriad of reasons. Um, and, of course, one of them being, you know, someone we develop sympathy for through the episode winds up dying, which means we've got a guest. Hi, Jason. Hi, everybody. Did somebody <laughs> die this week? <laughs> Welcome back to Jason Snell, one of our occasional guest speakers who seems to have developed a theme for the episodes that he joins us on. We've I don't know how that happened. but We've typecast um, you already, Jason. Mm-hmm. I'm the angel of death. <laughs> You're such Apparently. a cheerful. You're, you're such a cheerful presence in all of our most grim episodes. You gotta love your work, Chip. You gotta love your work. You gotta love your sad episodes of Babylon Five. <laughs> oh, okay. oh but yes, we have a we have a particularly dramatic, interesting episode um, with a lot of things that actually go on in the background of it. Uh, we can talk about that uh, a little more and, you know, what's the A plot, what's the B plot, and so forth. But first off, what you need to know. Lita Alexander was Babylon 5's first resident commercial telepath when the station opened. After scanning Ambassador Kosh in an attempt to find an attacker, she was recalled to Earth and the Psy Corps tried to discover what she'd learned by being in mind-to-mind contact with a Vorlon. She escaped back to Babylon 5 and was helped on her quest to get to the Vorlon homeworld. In this episode, Lita Alexander returns to Babylon 5, having made it to the Vorlon homeworld. She will act as an aide to Ambassador Kosh and is no longer in any way associated with Psycor. Dr. Franklin does a standard medical exam and discovers that all of Lita's previous health issues are gone. Meanwhile, one of Brother Theo's monks, Brother Edward, begins to suffer frightening hallucinatory symptoms. Edward investigates on his own while Theo asks the command staff to help, everyone suspecting that there is something in Edward's past that he forgot or was forced to forget. We learn that Edward was once a serial killer and received a mind wipe as his sentence. The relatives of his victims tracked him down, paying a Centauri telepath to bring his submerged memories to the surface, and one of them tortures Edward to the point of death, unsatisfied with the original punishment. With Lita's help, Sheridan, Garibaldi, and Theo find a dying Edward. Theo gives him last rites, assuring him that God will forgive him as Edward has come to sincerely regret what he had done in his previous life. Edward's murderer is also sentenced to being mind-wiped, and Theo specifically asks for the new brother Malcolm to be allowed to join his order, sending him back to Earth for his novitiate. This move seriously jolts Sheridan, who can't yet forgive the loss of Brother Edward. So be good, for goodness sake. (laughs) Yeah, this is, for me, a wham episode right in the feels. It may not be a wham in the terms of plot, but I cried. Did anybody else cry? You know, I didn't this time, but I know that I have in the past. I also didn't the very first time because 
I have been wrong this whole time, you guys. The episode that I thought that had gotten me into Babylon 5 was a different one that's a few episodes away, still in this season, uh, with, a, with a different guest star that I kind of recognized, which is why I got confused. But I am now pretty sure that this is the first one that, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> that actually pulled me in. Because like I said, we were watching before Deep Space Nine and would occasionally see part of Babylon 5. And this is the one. I recognized Brad Dourif because mostly mm-hmm. I knew him from Dune at the time. That was actually that was the yeah. thing that I knew him from. I think we're going to find that we all like knew him from somewhere different. <laughs> yes. Because mm-hmm. he, he's a pretty prolific actor. Mm-hmm. And that kind of grabbed me and made me pay attention. And because of the, the weight of the story and the fact that it was so emotionally powerful and was, for me at that time, a really good mystery, uh, it mm-hmm. sort of grabbed me and, and kept me sort of away from the conversation in the room and kept my attention coming back to Babylon 5. So when we were done, I turned to Steven and I said, this is it. This is the seed of my Babylon 5 fandom right here. And and I think that there are, are two reasons that that worked. One is Brad Dourif and his, his interesting performance. And then the other one is the fact that I didn't see the very beginning of the episode or wasn't paying attention mm-hmm. to it because it felt th- that whole storyline about the mind wipe thing felt very sort of in your face and heavy handed here. Like it, I should have mm-hmm. been able to figure out pretty quick what was going on with him. But because I had missed the beginning of the episode, I didn't see the scene with Garibaldi talking about the other fellow being mind wiped. I didn't know that that was a thing. So the uh, very first time mm. I saw this, it played out as a really fascinating mystery. What's going on inside this guy's head? And that was what helped to to draw me in. So I just feel very, very emotionally connected to this episode. Stephen was, was shocked that it was so focused on a guest character. And he mm-hmm. actually pointed out that I often tell people that Blink would work as a good Doctor Who starter story. And he's like, you know what? Mm-hmm. He said, for you, clearly this is the way things work, because this is not a representative episode of Babylon 5. And yet <laughs> it worked to pull me in. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting to come into that, like you said, partway through, because for people who had been watching the show, of course, um, the mind wipe issue calls back to the quality of Mercy uh, back in season one. Um, so, you know, most viewers would at least know kind of what was going on and maybe suspect more. I don't think it takes any way anything away from the revelation or Brad Dorf bringing Brother Edward to life the way he does. But, yeah, it would still be interesting. Yeah. Um, this episode was actually delayed. It was originally intended to air in the second season. And what happened uh, was that a fan posted on the public Internet a message direct to JMS saying, uh, wouldn't it be cool if uh, somebody you did a story about somebody having uh, ha- having been mind-wiped and uh, being a secret killer or something like that? And JMS's head landed on his desk. Repeatedly, <laughs> because uh, JMS was paranoid about receiving story ideas for obvious reasons. You know, he was, he, you know, it, it was entirely likely that any Hollywood writer on the Internet back in the day would get sued for story credit. So uh, Passing Through Gethsemane got put away for about a year until the fan, you know, sent sent a notarized statement saying, uh, uh, it's not my fault. I I was just, you know, just talking. I, I was just talking. I didn't contribute any ideas to this story. If it had aired in uh, the second season I, with Quality of Mercy having been more fresh, uh, I imagine that the opening stuff that sort of reiterates the whole mind wipe stuff True. wouldn't have been part of the episode and Quality of Mercy would have been fresher. JMS says and is quoted on the Lurker's Guide is that, that uh, 
uh, the, a couple of monks would have come onto the station to uh, sort of scope out to see if it would be appropriate for what they're up to in season three, and that would be that would have been how Brother Edward came to the station and had his crisis. I, you know what? I kind of like the way that it, this worked out better. I didn't even remember the mind wipe stuff in Quality of Mercy, even even watching mm-hmm. the show several times and doing a podcast about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I like the idea that the monks were already there. So when you have that opening scene with Ivanova standing next to, to Brother Edward, looking down at the chess game going on, which mm-hmm. I think is a fantastic scene, um, yes. they seem like they're, they're comrades already. And that makes perfect sense because these guys have been here for a while. They worked with Ivanova on their very first, you know, sort of mission on the station so it doesn't feel like you're suddenly saying hey look uh you know this guest star even though you're totally saying hey look this guest star is the the main the main dish today but it it worked better for me this way and it gives you the opportunity for that uh, very uh subtle line about i've always felt like if you're going to sin you should do one of the big ones <laughs> oh god yeah. I, how did i miss that wow <laughs> i i didn't put that together either but i also think it helps overall in the story because we have brother theo's order established on the station that lets us more quickly develop the same sympathy for brother edward that the command staff have um Mm -hmm. have for him and that you know we'll get into it a little more later but that sort of um that brings weight to the character's reactions to um to our reactions as viewers yeah but it also helps it also helps that that's it's not exactly a keffer situation where uh, who is this guy why is this guy sitting with us all we can we can just a brother Theo cares about brother Edward, right. and B they've been around a lot, so we can just assume that they've had opportunity to interact with each other. So and yeah. C it's Brad Dourif who can act. <laughs> yeah, we'll mention that in a minute. But Jason, what about you? What what is it about this episode that you love or that or you don't, remember? I I think Brad Dourif is part of it. Um, I don't know when we get to the point where we all say where we knew Brad Dourif for, but I will say I, I knew him from Beyond the Sea, the first season episode of The X-Files, where he plays okay. a killer, a mad killer. And 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 watching it back now, I would say, not only I, I love Brad Dourif, I think he's a really, uh, really good actor. Um, I like this episode with him because, yeah, it turns out that he's a, he's a killer who's been uh, wiped and redeemed, but um, it's, it's a... Uh, enjoyable to see Brad Dourif not just being creepy. Here, mm-hmm. he's not creepy at all. He's innocent. And I guess you get, by casting him, you sort of get the sense that there's something wrong about him beneath the surface. But I think this is kind <laughs> uh-huh. of a nice performance that he has he has gone through that and come out the other side and is now this kind of innocent uh, you know, maybe simple, but uh, uh, kind of person. And so I think Brad Dourif goes a long way to making this a, 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 a memorable episode. My wife actually asked me, what episode do you have to watch? Which one is it? I think is what she said. Mm-hmm. And she watched Babylon 5 with me week, week on week as we were uh, uh, watching it the first time. And and I thought, well, how do I explain it? And I said, this is the one about the 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 priest who, who turns out to have been a serial killer and they wipe his mind. And she was like, oh yeah, I remember that one, which I thought was interesting that this is not one <laughs> One of those big arc episodes, but like Shannon said, I think it's got that emotional impact that makes it that makes it memorable. And uh, and then watching it back, there are so many other things that I'm sure we'll get to that happen in this episode that are really kind of notable. So for a non-arc episode, it really is it is using all of the this backstory and the richness of Babylon Five up to this point. It, to do its job and to make it such a rich story, having the Lita sub sort of sub thread with Lita and Kosh and Londo as well. But um, 
but yeah, it's a great use of of uh, of uh, the the monks on the station too, which I know in previous episodes you sort of there's like background monks or why why didn't you use the monks to do that job? Mm-hmm. And here here we get a good use of them, and it's it's uh, I like that about it too because Louis Louis Turin is great, but Brad Dourif mm-hmm. I think is the reason that this episode pops and that he's not just creepy Brad Dourif like you'd see him in ten other things. I yeah. think this is a well written, well directed episode. That could have been utterly destroyed by lesser actors. Mm-hmm. So much yeah. depends on Durif and Turin. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll... And, and um, Sin- uh, Sinclair. Oh, my God. I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> Sheridan. I'm, I'm dancing. <laughs> yeah. I'm dancing. I'm dancing a victory <laughs> dance. If you think about, is it, which is the episode in season one where they, they have the, there's a religious themed episode in season one with a um, Parliament of festival. Is that Parliament of Dreams? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, this is to me, there, there are throughout Babylon 5, you, you get these episodes every now and then. This is, this is an, you know, explicit discussion of religion and faith and sacrifice and forgiveness. And I, I enjoy it when JMS does this. And yeah, you know, that first chess scene, it's super stagey, like, but not in a bad way. I kind of, I kind of felt like that is JMS at his stagey best where I could almost imagine sitting in a theater watching those actors on a stage having this conversation about faith and his eclectic faith and and all mm-hmm. of that 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 uh, that Sheridan has and and that that brother Theo is skeptical of it you know that's when we say Babylon 5 is stagey it often is but that, I thought that was like really good stagey so I like when uh, JMS does this thing where he has lots of ideas about religion and faith and the place that they have in in society and uh, that's all on display here uh, another thing about it is that he's not being abstract about religion and faith. He's, you know, he's he's doing this very explicitly through the uh, lens of Catholic theology, uh, with a couple of nods to uh, how the Mimbari think about religion and things like that. But there, he's ex- exploring this broad issue of redemption and forgiveness and guilt and all this stuff through a very specific lens. And it's 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 kind of fascinating in a way. Um, I'm a typical U.S. mainstream Protestant, um, so some of the things that uh, some of the Catholic rituals and sacraments and implications don't speak to me literally. But because they clearly mean so much to Edward and Theo, and because the script treats this stuff respectfully. You know, the the emotion behind those rituals and sacraments is really, really, um, it's really affecting. So, as a non-Catholic, I'm sitting here bawling during the last rites scene at the end. And, and, and you don't have to agree with the, or you don't have to believe in the rites or agree with um, whether a, a priest giving absolution actually means anything in the greater scheme to witness Edward believing that and receiving a, a the the peace that he seeks and in my case utter, be utterly moved by it. You know, I wonder if personal closeness to re- closeness to religion makes any difference as far as like how far you go down the the weeping train uh, in this episode cuz I guess for me I'm more of a a typical Canadian uh, agnostic. <laughs> 
And, <laughs> you know, so as a non-believer, I still very much um, thought that these characters were well built out and I could tell what was important to them. And because you write shit because it's important to them, um, I could I could understand it. And it didn't it didn't really drive me to tears this time. And as I said, it, it has in the past, but not to the extent it sounds like it did uh, for you guys. I think for me, that was just that type of of import that they put on these things was no different for me than any other um you know what alien race would have on their own their own religion or or really anything that any character believes in very strongly so i i feel it from the character's point of view but i don't have any connection to it in my real life for me i think the the ethics of it and the sort of the moral question of whether it's right to mind wipe somebody in the first place was was what i sort of sank my teeth into mm-hmm. was was that question like is this cruel and unusual punishment is that is that something I would be all for if that was a technology that we had? And, and it sent me sort of into thought spirals in that direction, thinking about it. So I think that this episode works on so many different levels because it's just looking at all of these different things that you can, you can chew on and dig into uh, depending on where you're coming at it from. And I think because it does it through the lens of the characters. I mean, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, like both of you said, you know, it's not necessarily that you have to be connected to their Catholic faith. There is enough provided in conversation and in dialogue that um, in ways that just are developing the characters, it's not even like you're being preached at. I never once in this episode felt like I was being preached at for anything. Mm. And that's not just because, you know, JMS wouldn't do that. Um, as far as anything religious, since he himself is an atheist, but he lets these characters demonstrate their beliefs and their feelings. And that's, for me, that's what hooks the viewer. I love the scene between Garibaldi and Delin, where they have an oh, argument yeah. about capital punishment, and neither one of them comes out ahead. Um mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you have these conversations well, in, in real life all the time. Garibaldi's answer to Delin's parroting of Gandhi about everybody would be left blind, and, blind toothless, and toothless. His response is, no, only the bad guys. And, you know, it's a... He, he it, didn't take the victims? <laughs> well, well anyway. He, he, yeah, he does... He, there is no there there is no easy winner in that. Uh, he's he's not buying what Delin is selling, and that helps this episode quite a lot because this uh, JMS on he's quoted on the Lurkers Guide as saying that he is a person who is has who he, he is incapable of forgiving, um, and it is valuable to him to create characters who are capable of it and to explore the ramifications of that. Um, I do like that in this episode that he attacks this and so many other issues from a whole bunch of different sides and leads it to us to, as, as you said, Derek, uh, to, you know, to just get your mind spinning about it all. Well, I mean, we so, we so infrequently see, it's not that it isn't out there, but we infrequently see science fiction that talks about religion. It, mm-hmm. it happens, but there, the, it, it's rare, and I think we can understand why often there is this conflict between science and religion. And here we've got a Jesuit-educated writer who is an atheist who wants to pl- uh, play in this, you know, this universe and bang these concepts against each other. And what a fantastic science fictional concept it is to say, if you have the technology to wipe somebody's mind 
and you believe that one of the important things in spiritual life and potentially literally depending on what you believe uh the grace that i'm forgive me for my being bad at religion because i am not a believer either um the idea that if you if you need forgiveness and you can receive forgiveness before you die and that has something to do with the disposition of your soul you put those together and say well wait if i wipe his mind so that he doesn't know what he did he can't ask for forgiveness Mm -hmm. what a great idea that is and that's the tragedy of brother edward so i really love that he he throws that in there i do think that the minbari religion is uh is the author uh taking another viewpoint i think Mm -hmm. um this i think delenn is quoting from well-known minbari carl sagan when she talks about <laughs> the universe trying to understand itself, but as somebody who again is not a particularly spiritual spiritual person, that is literally true, right? The the if the universe is is uh, space time and all the atoms that are that make up the universe, we are those atoms. We are all alive and thinking and trying to understand the universe. So quite literally, we are the universe trying to understand itself. And I think that it is a beautiful moment where you don't really see it as being kind of science or atheism coming in it's instead it's an alien religion but it gives you that same kind of perspective that isn't placed in opposition to what the brothers believe which i think is really nice instead they're trying to find some commonality there mm-hmm. and you get that awesome uh, analogy of the the soul being compared to the light on the wall the wall is not generating light any more than we are generating the soul which whether you believe it or not is kind of a beautiful poetic way to look at things and and since this episode aired th- there actually is this concept in uh, kind of theoretical physics that the entire universe that we see as a three-dimensional construct is actually um, uh, uh, essentially that it's actually there's no difference it's like a hologram it's actually a, a flat representation on a membrane of like a multi-dimensional membrane that that uh, can be calculated. It's crazy, but basically, suffice <laughs> it to say, this is not that that bad a metaphor for what <laughs> some people think the universe might actually be like. So maybe the Membari know even more than than we realized. The metaphor that Lanier sets up is an example of JMS's writing as it's at its best. And I was wondering what you all thought about the ju- the structure of the writing of this episode in general, because. To a greater or lesser extent, I think most I think we were all you know moved by Edward's plight and uh, sort of caught up in all the questions that are asked. But the way this episode is structured, you know, as Erica pointed out, unless you tune in in the middle, it's not exactly a mystery. Everything is set up almost obviously from beginning to end. Uh, the scene where Garibaldi's watching TV and they talk about mind wipes, and Edward almost immediately starts questioning whether he's remembering things that happened and he had been made to forget or something like that. So just, um, is it too unsubtle? You know, I think that this is an episode that really hinges on the performances and mm-hmm. the actors because I my my instinct is to say, no, it absolutely works. Even watching it from the beginning and seeing how clearly everything is laid out. Yeah, you can see the direction it's going, but it doesn't feel ham-fisted. It still feels like it's it's elegant and it works. And then I picture it with say somebody other than Brad Dourif or somebody other than Louis Turin as it, you know, all of these amazing performances, which I think are in a great big way, the emotional core of this story, uh, if they didn't pull it off, I think maybe I would feel that it was a little bit too obvious or just too too easy. Um, 
I don't think it would be bad. I think even with bad performances, I still appreciate the the ideas of the script and, and mm-hmm. sort of the way that they're put together. But it's I think it is elevated by the performances that we get. Um, so, I, I'm, so I'm not going to think too hard about the alternative. I like it as it is. Yeah, I would I would agree. Um, you know, as we were sharing around in, in my case, uh, I recognize Brad Dura from, of all things, the Whoopi Goldberg movie Fatal Beauty, where he's uh, a drug running gangster and, you know, playing an over the top psycho. Um, so. You know, and it took me a few minutes to adjust. Okay, he's playing a different character, and then you know he he starts drawing you in because he's just that good. But yeah, I agree that between the performances, um, and apparently also the direction, uh, JMS oh, mentioned yeah. uh, Adam Nimoy. This is Chip, the first of two episodes that he directs for Babylon Five. Is that right? Yes. And um, JMS mentions on the Lurker's Guide how even though it was a TV production schedule on a rushed, where everything had to be completed in a few days type thing, Nimoy still took the time not only to go through the script himself, but to sit down with the actors and talk about what did we want to produce in these scenes. And I think that's another key to holding this story together. On paper, it is you know, at times elegant. Uh, I like how they keep using Delenn as sort of the the foil or the um, the other uh, viewpoint, whether it's her talk with Garibaldi or her talk with Brother Edward. And there's, of course, the tie-ins where they are able to bring Lita in to help them towards the end to find Brother Edward before he dies. Uh, but I think, yeah, if, if you didn't have those key elements of the really good guest actors and the really good, careful director who took the time to do it right, yeah, this this could have been um, this could have been a regrettable episode. It's funny though the uh, so in so many of the episodes where I feel like the structure is problematic, it it tends to be the payoffs that I I think are 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 too um, awkward. And if if this makes any sense. Um, it feels like the setup is what's awkward in this episode, and they get past it. But like Garibaldi, he's watching court TV. Conveniently, we see that because then the you know the, it's the ISN court channel because um, the, the news comes on and says about the the murder case, and there's mind wipe exposition that we get, and that's really heavy handed. And then later there is the scene with Brad Dourif, which he does a nice job with it, but it's not the strongest scene in the episode where he is musing about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it, you know. I wonder if that's going to be important later. It's like, yeah, those are, those are, you know, Chekhov is literally running on stage and hanging the gun on the wall during those points. Yes. But, you know, if, again, I kept thinking if I was watching this as a, as a play, I would forgive it that, right? Because I would know that this is what it's about. This form is the structure. This is, we are, we are watching the car crash happen in slow motion. We know that poor, something bad is going to happen to poor uh, brother Edward. That's just how it's going to be. And the resolution of it, I felt like really made it all worthwhile because it, that, that part is so well done that I can forgive the, you know, the, the Garibaldi watching TV in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that like Chip said, I wouldn't be surprised if that scene was added in because of the long delay between yeah, the time sure. that JMS had hoped to have this story versus when it actually happened. At this point, Quality of Mercy is like two seasons ago. Right. And it makes so, it self-contained, which was good yeah. for Erica, apparently. So that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, one, and, one, one point I'd like to throw in to sort of uh, cap off uh, maybe the conversation about uh, how much how important the acting is, as well as the direction. Um Robert Keith as brother Malcolm almost sends this thing off the rails. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, he had me, <laughs> he had me wincing. Um, yeah, especially the the scene where he was arrested. That that just it was just. Like, I ain't oh, denying it. We're we're we're, got, we're back to season one and all of our rotating mm-hmm. like bit players. Yes. Um, exactly. Even when he comes back and he's he's after the mind mm-hmm. wiping, he's supposed to be all kind. He still seems icky and creepy yep. and still has the crazy eyes. So I was just <laughs> yeah. <didn't> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Not the not the very feels very much like your stock. We need another actor for Babylon Five kind of casting and not a oh look they got Brad Dourif kind of moment yeah, yeah. right but Louis Turan, his brother Theo is oh, amazing in he this is. performance he's the he he's almost the perfect clergyman in the sense that you know he's got a very strong uh, sense of he's not not only faith but ethics and what he believes in uh, you know he doesn't he he doesn't bend in any way. Uh, but the amount of compassion that he has for Edward and at the end when uh, Brother Malcolm shows up and um, Theo reminds Sheridan about the conversation about uh, how forgiveness is something worth striving for, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. tell that A, Theo thoroughly believes that and B, Theo he is totally struggling with that. Found it just as hard. Yes, yes it, it, he is. He is doing it anyway because he believes it is right and what is proper, and he is just going to have to work on himself to accept that because he can't stand what Malcolm did either. Oh, such a great bookend. I mean, that for me, that's the emotionally wrenching part of this episode. Is right there. We we have the bookends of of uh, Brother Theo and Sheridan, and he he's schooling mm-hmm. him at the beginning, and he's schooling him again at the end because that's what he's doing. He's he's basically a teacher, and he's trying to provide some some uh some education to the soul of john sheridan here about about forgiveness and that is such a dagger that moment of i believe you were saying forgiveness is a hard thing but we one we should ever strive for and uh, you know the words are nice but now you have to live it and it's such mm-hmm. a great moment and 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 that that not the death that the very drawn out death of brother edward you know, I, that's not my favorite thing in the episode either, but that moment where Sheridan has to feel forgiveness. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. When Sheridan chooses to shake Malcolm's hand. Yeah. Yes. After Indeed. after after failing the first time. Yeah. And really, I mean, per- performance-wise, actually, Bruce Boxleitner, I think, was, was great in that mm-hmm. last scene as well, mm-hmm. when Brother... Um, uh, when Brother Theo gives him the statuette that, that ne- Brother Edward never got a chance to finish, like mm-hmm. Bruce Boxland looks like he's about to cry. Oh, yeah. And then so it really makes sense that he's so resistant to wanting to shake the hand of that guy because, you know, he's he's got this soldier's outlook. He's very reactive uh, in a lot of ways. And, yeah, Brother Theo just nails him to the wall. Indeed. Oh, can uh, is there anything else we want to touch on before? Because there's like a whole other like plot well, to talk about. We, we have to yeah. we have to mention Lita. <laughs> yeah, I think. Oh. Well, we've got plenty to talk about about Lita. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause... Oh, I didn't know whether you were jumping into spoiler space or not. No, like, no there's no, more you'll, in you'll this have episode. Jump there's this yep. whole <laughs> other thing that happens in this episode with Lita that is just running in parallel. It's like, talk about your B-plots. It's, it's like, yeah. it's and an let's... important, interesting thing that is not even, you know, necessarily that we haven't even connected. touched on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. There's like the one brief connection because they borrow her to uh, get the Centauri to reveal the location. But oh, 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 I love that scene. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with that then. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm sorry. I wasn't. Go- I wasn't going to. Tr- I wasn't trying to wrest the microphone away. I was just interjecting okay. that. Oh my God! I love that scene. Lita, yeah. I mean, badass we- Lita Unchained. Badass yes. Lita. Badass Sheridan. Badass Garibaldi. There is so much badassery that's also creepy <laughs> as hell. 
Mm-hmm. Because yeah. yeah, that scene is good, but oh, it makes me uncomfortable. Like the choices that they're making and what they're choosing as to do. It I don't know if I like this president. And she says, "Oh, he's just he's just passed out. He'll be fine." And they leave the room. And I turned to Lauren and I said, "I said, oh, also he pooped his pants." <laughs> <laughs> somebody get somebody down here to clean it up. But we don't care. We're leaving this room now. It's like because it felt oh, like wow. that. It's like what did they do to that guy? I mean, he was kind of a jerk. But what did they do to that guy? It's like oh, he he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. He uh, wrenched. Yeah. His, the information out of his head very handily. And that is something yeah. that the Lita we used to know, we don't know if she could have done that. There's like this sudden leap mm. in her confidence, in, you know, just her demeanor, her entire demeanor. Well, we've and, only seen we've only seen her twice, right? We've only seen her in The Gathering and Divided Loyalties. Yeah, right? and what we're getting now is a 180 from, from what we've been presented before. I mean, before we had somebody who, you know, was... You know, she wasn't exactly a shrinking violet, but, you know, she didn't put herself out in any way. She was the telepath. She had to, like, keep herself under tight control, as all psychop, uh, psychor uh, telepaths have to do. You know, but, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with Jakar back in The Gathering and his proposition. Uh, and even in Divided Loyalties, you know, she's on the run. She She's, like, you know, constantly in a state of low panic as she tries to get through... Uh, the situation. But here, you know, she comes in, she tells the command staff what she can, and then she runs into Londo and she just sends him packing. That's like that's that's not the leader we remember from our she previous beats, episodes. She beats Londo I don't know in his if own I agree game. with that. I actually I actually think that this looked more like a progression because yeah, in that first the first episode, the in the gathering the pilot, she was just, you know, your average commercial telepath mm-hmm. who gets called upon to do a job. And I really thought that the the Lita that we saw in um in the previous episode where she pops up from Mars, that that was actually quite a a, a distinct change there. Mm-hmm. And yes, you do point out that she was on the run. And I think that had she not been on the run, I feel like she probably would have acted quite a bit like this at that time. But and she just she did seem much more tougher and much, much more badass at that time. But she was on the run, so it couldn't really fully manifest. And then we get here where she doesn't have to worry about that stuff anymore. She's under the protection of a Vorlon, apparently, and <laughs> and just feels comfortable in her own skin. So mm-hmm. I don't think this is a big change. I think that this is this is the, uh, the opening of the flower. She's I gotten see- there. Finally. Okay, I can see that. And now even Vo- even Kosh has an aide. Yes. Everybody's got an aide. Everybody gets one. Isn't that nice? I like the um, as an old school Star Trek fan. I really like the scene. Well, that's strong. I enjoyed the scene with Franklin examining her because mm-hmm. it's that there's nothing wrong with her. Don't you understand? That's what's wrong with her. Which was like in every episode of the original Star Trek where they examine somebody, their their health is perfect, too perfect. And then yeah. at the end, of course, we get the reveal that she's got some weird uh, glowy thing going on with Kosh, and she's and standing this- there with her gills and her neck. And something yep. happened to Lita on the Vorlon homeworld. Big surprise there. <laughs> Big and time. what? who knows what it is. Yeah, and this was the first time that I put together Franklin's mentioning that she's got elevated oxygen levels in her blood. And mm-hmm. she's got gills. So she's got extra ways to mm. apparently to breathe, apparently. Secret gills that don't show up in a, uh, in a medical exam. Yeah, they're they're oh, Vorlon, yeah, special Vorlon biotech. They're cloaking gills. I just had apparently. candidate for you. <laughs> that uh, that scene at the end was actually the one scene that Stephen did not like of this episode. What he, he quite in, 
Yeah, well, because he he doesn't like things that make him feel like he doesn't know what's going on. You're not supposed to know what's going on. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. But he's been I think he's been burned by a lot of complicated TV shows where he's supposed to understand what's going on. And he doesn't that every time something comes along and he is not sure what's going on. He feels like he's missing something. And that's like, Uh, I can understand that. That's not a, that's not a fun thing. I had that thought. So even when I pointed that out, he just said, he just said, nope, it was too. And that's, that's, I think why he still hates the four lines. He says they're just (laughs) too mysterious for their own good. Yeah, It's Um, it's a confusing scene. It really is. I think it would have been more effective if she had said, well, I've got, I've got that information you want or whatever the context of that scene is. And then, (sighs) and then had the weird like stuff come out of her. But instead we kind of join it in the middle and we're like, what is happening? Is she, is she killing Kosh? Is he killing her? Is I, he inside I, I her? What is going sex. on? Right? Yeah. I lo- yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Is she an android? That was, Stephen wondered if she was even just an android. <laughs> if she'd been replaced by yeah. something. His his guess was that maybe she was reporting some information, and that's how she does it now. Mm-hmm. He just he really wasn't sure, and he right. didn't he didn't yeah. like. But I love the like ambiguity sure. of that. I just do. I I love the mystery that there's more to this. You know. What's going on? You know, we we see that we can infer that she's made a deal with the Vorlons in some way, and she's doing something with Kosh that may or may not be benign. Um, but I I I just love the added level of mystery. Well, that is where you differ from my spouse. <laughs> yeah, I think I I don't know if just JMS sort of felt the need to have sort of the visual oomph uh, to emphasize. You know, not just Lita can't share what she learned on the Vorlon homeworld, but letting the viewers in on just what that entails. Like, this is just a tiny taste of all these things Lita can't share or won't share with Earth Force. What about the scene between her and Londo? I enjoyed that. I like, I like, I mean, Londo is is a bit big for his britches, I think, at this point. The fact that he feels like he can just, you know, come up and, and ask for anything from anyone and how he tries to at first play that, oh, you know, we're such good friends. They were never hanging out, nope. at least not that I recall. Nope. Um, and then, of course, as soon as that doesn't work and she tries to walk away, he then resorts to uh, deciding that he's going to try to blackmail her and say, oh, you know, I would hate for the, the psychor to find you. And that's when it just completely backfires on him. And that was, I think that was my favorite lead up bit was her you know talking you know that uh that he'll spend every night screaming uh, mm-hmm. yeah every night for the rest of his life screaming and the way she says screaming is just that is like my perfect lead moment yeah. from this episode and then but and also even the little kicker in the after effects londo's sort of like you know my li- you know my life's already in the, in that place just this tiny brief flash of londo recognizing just how deep he's dug himself you know, it, it's in, uh, encapsulated in that one little line. Yeah, but that was the that was the one that was my least far, favorite part of the episode. You know, the sort of soliloquy to, to camera in that moment. I know that there's a lot that's stagey in this episode, but I thought that that was a bridge too far. Mm. Well, overall, I should I should point out quickly that Stephen actually did like this story. Um, okay, it was it was just that one scene that that kind mm-hmm. of uh, annoyed mm-hmm. him at the end. Uh, it was it was fun watching this with him because. Uh, first of all, new director that he quite liked. So, you know, you said JMS mentioned Adam Nimoy. JMS mm-hmm. is not the only one. Steven kept mentioning Adam Nimoy all the way through. <laughs> he would like, he'd give a big thumbs up to the screen and go, good job, Adam Nimoy, mm-hmm. um, at, at interesting, interesting spots. So that was, that was kind of nice. He, he liked very much that the camera work was interesting, the way that it was placed. Uh, the actors mm-hmm. gave great performances. I think one of my favorites was the scene between 
uh, Brother Theo and Brother Edward with sort of the cage looking yeah. thing in between them where the lighting is coming from below so it looks like Brad Dorf's eyes are empty and black. Yes. Mm. That is super super effective. Um, yeah, so that, I, was, I, that really struck me this time too seeing sort of it's almost like you're seeing inside to the person he used to be rather than the person mm-hmm. he is now even though the words he's saying are pure brother Edward. It's like the face we're being shown at the same time is of um of Dexter. Yep. The, and the, the um yeah, but the uh, the other thing that something that Jason said earlier is just the fact that you cast Brad Dorif makes you think that there's probably something off with his character, which is true because Stephen was kind of immediately like never trust Brad Dorif. Uh, that's just that is just what you that is just what you do when you're casting him. Something weird's going on. Um, so he was very surprised that that the episode was so focused on him and, mm-hmm. and nobody else. But he was also surprised just to see Lita show up. Like she came mm-hmm. off the Vorlon ship, and Stephen's like her again. What? The other telepath, and then he's like, "Yeah, now she's officially been in more epi- episodes than the telepath." Oh, she God. Replaced. Oh, just like, did you did you notice she also doesn't like walk off the Vorlon ship? She sort of slides out from the Vorlon yeah. ship. It's yes. super weird, creepy, creepy, and weird. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at, at the end, Stephen was just like, "You know, the opening credits are a bingo card because Aragorn <laughs> gets his name in the credits, and then he never mm. appears again." So he was just he was very you know his usual thoughts on on opening credits and, and characters and stuff like that. Um, but but yeah, overall he he quite enjoyed it, and um, he just to bring in the Doctor Who connection a little bit. He thought the whole mind wipe idea was very similar to uh, Mind of Evil, in which uh, bad people have the badness taken out of them, which is kind of a similar thing. And mm-hmm. we both thought that that cute little scene with uh, with brother Edward and Lanier and Delenn was funny at the end as they're leaving, and he's like, you know, and sometime I'd like to learn about Valen, and. Mm-hmm. Lanier just starts spouting off. Babbling. Have you heard the good Steven, news about Valen? <laughs> Stephen just goes, nerd. <laughs> yep. That's good. Perfect. Yeah, but it, it's now, kind of, yeah, yeah, it's like it's the first bit of information we get about this Valen name that's been thrown around. We get actually quite a bit with between the scene in Delenn's quarters and that little bit outside. We we get our first like sort of really big chunk of what Mimbari religion is really like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Good stuff all around. Yeah. We are going to head for our jump gate. For our viewers watching this for the first time around, uh, this will be the point where you get off and wait for the next episode. Uh, In the meantime, you are welcome to come by our website at b5audioguide.com and join in the conversation. Uh, We're happy to have you, and you have a spoiler-free thread all for you guys. And we can also uh, chat with you on Tumblr and Twitter at B5 Audio Guide. Uh, And we thank Jason Snell for appearing. Jason, if people like your opinions and wish to subscribe to your newsletters, where can they find you? You can find me. uh, I write about technology at sixcolors.com. And you can find many, many podcasts, including those featuring people on this very podcast at theincomparable.com. Our episode for next time that you should watch, Voices of Authority. In the meantime, let's go through a game. Sinclair is Valen! Sinclair is Valen! <laughs> <laughs> he's the, is he's be... the, have you heard the good news about Valen? He's the greatest of us. He's a Mimbari, not more than a Mimbari. I wonder what that could mean! <laughs> <laughs> At the time on Usenet, people were, were uh, postulating that he was a Vorlon.
Yeah, because uh, Warlons sure. could apparently mimic other other races. They do alien all sorts races. of crazy stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm. This 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 to me is the uh, J, you know as as we've as we've been discussing in spoiler space, Michael O'Hare had uh, health issues that kept him away from the show um, after the first season, and I, I'm thinking that as JMS is writing this script, uh, polishing it up after the year's delay, he's like. All right, I've got the all clear. Michael's doing better. I can set things up for War Without End. Here's so the info dump right here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, throwing that little bit in there in such a a funny way, really. Like you said, you know, you know, yeah. linear nerd, you know, <laughs> or you know, what whatever, <laughs> I, Evan- evangelical, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I will I will admit to perhaps playing up my reaction to that moment a tiny bit just because I wanted to call attention to it so that Stephen was paying attention. You know, you have to know who Valen is. This is important. So I laughed, I think, a little bit harder at Lanier. Um, and then, you know, Stephen kind of looked at me and I just said, Lanier is so cute. And mm-hmm. that, that was when Stephen just said nerd. So, I, mm. you know, maybe I wouldn't have needed to go quite that far, but I wanted it in his head. Gosh, darn it. Uh, yeah, because we, we get we really don't get that again until War Without End itself when Aragorn, who will show up again, Stephen, uh, yes. <laughs> um, says, oh, my God, Mimbari not born of Mimbari. This and that are really the only times when that is said. It works, though. It's a great yeah. payoff moment. The the planting it here, it's early enough, I think. Watching it real time when it was on, I felt like this was, uh, I, I this planted in my mind. And when that episode aired, I had that moment of like, oh, right. And so it worked in the sense <laughs> uh-huh. that it was sitting there in the background reference material for me to check the box when we got to it and go, oh, yeah, it, it all lines up. And so I thought it was effective. But yeah, you, you do wonder if he was... Uh, not talking if JMS was not going to deal with this until he had a, a greater confidence that it was going to get pulled off in mm-hmm. War Without End. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's generic and kind of, you know, mysterious enough that he could have gone different ways with it if he right. needed to. They so. could have replaced, and, and I, you know, actually, they could have replaced uh, Sinclair up to the last minute in War Without End with a new mm-hmm. character who mm-hmm. was important to the Rangers and they could have, I mean, I'm sure there was a trap door there just in case something yep. happened with Michael O'Hare. It's not ever specified who this person is. That's good for the mystery. It's good in case you've got a contingency plan. Um, but I think it's I think it's really great because what's, what's really awesome is that we've heard of Valen as this analog for Jesus, basically, or God, from the, the Membari for a long time. And in this episode, which has um, a lot of Christian discussion and imagery, including mm-hmm. the, the, the way that Brad Dourif is mounted Jesus-like. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, which yeah, we didn't Stephen even was like, how did I know he was going to be strung up like that? Yeah, a little, <laughs> little, a little uh, crucifixion imagery there. Uh, what a surprise. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, so it's fitting that we get our download about Valen here because we've been wondering, like, who is this Minbari savior that we've heard so much about? And now we know a little bit more about it just, just in time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something um, I, I went looking just because I didn't remember. Unfortunately, we only get to see Brother Theo once more, like, you know, featured in an episode. Uh, he will be Ooh. there with And the Rock Cried Out, No Hiding Place, um, as he helps um, gather other religious representatives who are there actually bringing information to the now renegade. I almost did it again, too. Okay, Sheridan. <laughs> Not Sinclair. Sheridan. When they have broken off from Earth. Uh, and then leading to, you know, what's <laughs> going to be one of my personal favorite uh, scenes 
Um, with the um, with the gospel music playing oh, along oh, to so Reva's death, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm singing it in my head right now. I know, yeah, but do me too. But, but as, what as, com- as murder occurs, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what a come down! I mean, this is Louis Turin at his height yeah. as Brother Theo, and then and and he's so three dimensional, so well drawn, and in and the Rock cried out, "No hiding he's, place." He's basically a comedy but, Catholic. Yeah, he he's bickering with the other with, with the the with the preacher, so, but but bad. yeah, so that makes me slightly sad. Um, and then this is the I mean the I guess the other big thing in this in this episode that's uh, in terms of the arc is is mm-hmm. this launching of Lita. I mean oh, yeah. she's back mm-hmm. she's back to stay now, and despite what Stephen might think, <laughs> she's back to stay, <laughs> right. and she's super important because this is picking up on that lost thread when. Andrea Thompson left the show that they had set up the Ironheart Penny thing mm-hmm. right. and instead you know we need a we need a powerful telepath who's on our side in the war and it's not going to be Talia so now we get Lita she's been modified by the Vorlon she's working for Kosh and uh, and yeah she she co- says she comes and goes and she comes and goes actually very quickly at the end of this episode which I thought was kind of strange it's like oh, yeah I'm back we didn't even know you were gone but you're back <laughs> um, but she she you know Pat Tallman is on the show now for ever mm-hmm. which is cool because i like mm-hmm. her. yeah actually i did i did sort of let steven know that because he was afterwards he was like okay so is she in the show now and i was like do you yeah. want me to tell you that and he's like <laughs> first he's like no 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 and then you know i pointed out i said if you were paying attention to casting news and stuff at the time the way you do say for doctor who you know it's probably something that you might have known anyway and he was like later and then he was like yeah go ahead and tell me and i was like and then you yes. revealed the box cover to exactly him. that's right so i finally said okay i don't have to put the darn dvd in the slot every time anymore you can now take the box out of the shelf yes <laughs> so he immediately went to the box and then looked at it and was like what aragorn's on here too <laughs> which means you're gonna see him again be patient <laughs> indeed lita's return is certainly one of the biggest things in future episodes um, and it's so elegant, and mm-hmm. it's such an elegant replacement for Talia. Possibly mm-hmm. even better, because instead no, of the deus ex machina of uh, D- Jason Ironheart from Mind War, um, and you would you assume have... that she was she would get steadily, steadily stronger, or maybe something would happen that would push her along. Lita is immediately enmeshed in the whole uh, Vorlon thing, which gives her a plausible reason to have heightened power. And it also sets up Lita's character arc for the entire rest of the series, mm-hmm. where she swings between having agency and being a puppet, puppet a puppet of the Vorlons, especially Olkesh, uh, and then um, used by Sheridan during the campaign against Earth, and then, frankly, being just disrespected by President Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so, so there's a lot of stuff to hang a lot of character development on Lita uh, that's set up right from this episode. And you know, that's interesting because as I've said before in Spoiler Space, I'm just not a Talia fan. I never liked her very much. But this story being now, as I'm pretty sure, where I came into Babylon 5, Lita was an integral part Mm -hmm. of my Babylon 5 experience from day one. So I loved her and I grew to know her as a character and then looping back and, and seeing this completely different character, this completely different 
performance and personality just didn't work for me. So mm-hmm. so now that everything's making more sense as I go through like this journey and st- sort of reconstruct my own personal history. And one thing I noticed about Lita this time that I don't know that I noticed before was in this very first episode that she's uh, an attache to the Vorlon, when she comes back and she's in that scene coming off the transport, uh, walking down the hall with Ivanova, she looks terrible. They did a great job with her makeup, just mm. dark circles under the eyes. She looks pasty and pale and gross. And, you know, later we'll find out why, that it's difficult to carry a part of a Vorlon inside you. Mm. But here, I love that it, it's just on the screen. If you notice it, you notice it, but they don't make a big deal out of it and they don't point it out right away. Okay. Um, I also like that she's the, um, it's actually, if you think about it, Talia was the trapdoor because Lita's in the pilot. Lita's in mm-hmm. the gathering. and then, true. And then she doesn't get picked up and they bring in Talia and they do this story with Talia. And it's kind of really nice that at this point when they have to get rid of Talia, they get they get to bring back the original telepath who I wonder, and I don't know if he was thinking this far ahead, he possibly was, I wonder if her contact with the Vorlons in the first episode, in the gathering, mm-hmm was going to lead her down a path where she would be different and important as a telepath later on. And if we're actually kind of going back to the original design at this point by doing I'd say this, almost certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's cool because the gathering, it's easy to, to wave that away as being like, wow, there's almost nobody even in that who's in the show um, other than other than Ivanova and Garibaldi and the alien ambassadors. But like so, so many of the Earth Force personnel are just gone. But here we go, right? I mean, like here she, here she is. She's back from that. Suddenly the gathering is tied more into what's going on in Babylon 5 than it was before. You can't ignore it as much as you might have liked to. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, that's kind of cool because that's like, uh, talk about a callback this is three years after that had aired three and a half years maybe i mean it was a long time after that episode had aired and suddenly you know we get talia and she's back all the way at this point and uh, we should have mentioned this in uh pre-jump gate is anybody else as creeped out as this as me and three hands go up i mean (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) yep I was just going to say anything with the Vorlons. It's, mm. it's fun to see people be creeped out by it, including Steven, because the <laughs> fact that I find it fascinating, the fact that he just hates the Vorlons so much. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Like, right, he's, exactly. he's totally prescient. Yes. Well, Whereas and you, and you the first time I watched the show, I was I was pro Vorlon, like from the very beginning. So when they when the turn came, I was just like, oh, no, and he's going to be punching the air and being like, see, I told you so. Well, the really <laughs> nice, the really nice dance that JMS is doing here, too, is that he, over the course of season three with Kasha's relationship with Sheridan leading mm-hmm. up to Confessions and Lamentations, um, it, it, that's, that's the episode, right? Yep. That, no, yep. That, or, yep. Yeah. As opposed to interludes and examinations, there's so many. Um, the uh, the it's, it's oh wait a minute no 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 you're it's right the other it's, way around right it is interludes and examinations interludes and examinations the confessions and lamentations is when all the Mark Cab die I was here for that one yes. I, um, <laughs> the, the anyway the the point is uh, Sheridan and Kosh get a good relationship and we've suddenly become more attached to Kosh and it'll be interesting to see how Stephen reacts to that but yes. that's so effective because like however you feel about the Vorlons you start to like Kosh and then mm-hmm. when Kosh is taken off the board then it gets really interesting because that's the moment where you start being like who are these guys who's this replacement for him the Vorlons are jerks so it's, it's a really nice like we, we are All drawn is closer horrible to Lita yeah, oh, yeah so yeah. we're drawn closer to the Vorlons as we get drawn closer to Kosh and that makes it all the better i think and more effective when we get kind of pushed away from them after he dies mm-hmm. yeah it'll be interesting to see if that actually works on steven or if he just stays stupid as he is <laughs> anti-vorlon they're all no, no, it's hard it's hard not to look at rance howard saying goodbye 
Exactly. And, That's true. And yeah. not feel sympathy for what sacrifice Kosh makes in that episode. If your husband turns his back on Rance Howard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I don't know what I don't. I don't want to think about it, guys. No. Let's, let's pretend it's not going to happen and just cross our fingers. <laughs> anyway, a main character dies in that episode, so I hope I'll be back for it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I, as I meant to say actually before the spoiler before the spoiler uh, jump gate, but I, I think that it's perfect to have you back on for this one, Jason, because not only does somebody we care about die, but it's somebody who has you know is is kind of literally a child because he's only nine years old he's you know very innocent yes. and mm-hmm. trusting mm-hmm. and and yeah the, the street continues mm. <laughs> indeed yeah. i don't know how that happened but sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah one other little thing that occurred to me this time around um hearing uh delenn and garibaldi go back and forth and her you know coming down on the side of you know that you know eye for an eye doesn't work that it's not the way but on our um movie in the beginning she's the one that her it's her vote that's the deciding vote that in her anger in her grief she starts screaming kill them all because they have inadvertently killed um Ducat. um you know so that that was you know of course many years ago and drastically different situation but you know at one time you know delenn reacted in a garibaldi fashion um, yeah, there there's a certain amount of, and and some some people have noted this about Delenn is that she's slightly self righteous. Uh, we don't know at this time that she and maybe JMS didn't even know that she was the deciding vote that started the mm-hmm. Earth Membari War. Um, but she's not just um, she presents the appearance of just you know this is she doesn't. In- give a hint of understanding to Garibaldi that um, the, that uh, she understands his desire for revenge. She just never shows it. But she has come by her beliefs, not just because of uh, Minbari philosophy, but because she learned it the hard way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I imagine, you know, that, you know, who knows, in, in that discussion, maybe she's, you know, remembering an echo and she's ashamed of the fact that that she was the one in grief and in anger um, reacted to a situation that, you know, was just this one giant misunderstanding uh, of the Earthers, you know, firing back in fear, not in aggression. Two things. One is actually just a question. For some reason, I had it in my head that all Centauri telepaths were female. Clearly, that's not the case. But is there somewhere that I got that from or did I just totally misunderstand? they only showed the female telepaths that were the companions to the emperor in the coming okay. of shadows that they were specifically raised from birth and linked i don't know that it was said that they had to be female just that you know these three had been raised from birth with linked minds so that they com- could communicate across impossible distances and keep the emperor informed uh, we've also seen prophetesses if i'm pronouncing yes. it right yeah the um uh, right Lord Kiro's aunt was it? I think so. And uh, and we will see Major Barrett um, yep. soon. So I think that's where you're getting. I don't. I, I don't think we've okay. ever seen any clairvoyance uh, among male Centauri. Right. This is the also the the yeah. It's the the four telepaths we find out that uh, are always with the emperor and that they they are are linked since birth and they. Uh, to to travel with the emperor and to remain back at the palace so it's like a mm-hmm. communication 
relay or something. So, so yeah, which is really convenient. But I guess there is no such thing as relativistic time in the Babylon Five universe. But yeah. not for <laughs> not for telepathy. It just blows right through time. <laughs> and the other thing that I noticed is, and I kind of mentioned it before we jumped into spoiler space, was the um, the the scene with everybody uh, just deciding to use Lita against the telepath, uh, the Centauri telepath, even though that's oh, that's really an uncomfortable and sketchy decision to make. And I feel like we've been seeing Sheridan be a little bit more of a tough guy as of late. So not only just that decision, but you know, we we just in, in a day in the strife, we saw him facing down a guy with a weapon, and you know, in that room full of uh, angry um, th- they weren't dock workers they were pilots mm-hmm. angry pilots and then you know in in this episode he's a, a bit more of a tough guy you know wanting to to, to punch brother Malcolm in the face right away uh, like all of these decisions and, and all of this stuff is is making me kind of cringe a little bit which I think is not a bad place to be when we're evaluating the actions that he is about to take and and it sort of makes sense with his his decisions to to you know cut themselves off from earth and and declare independence and you know regardless of what you think about those decisions I feel like these little bits and pieces of his character are being sort of added in to bolster that decision well you know come to think of it let's uh, stretch this let's make this really specific about uh, about telepaths he uses Lita in this case, but she's perfectly happy to do it. But he's going to be using Lita in war a fair bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes Dr. Franklin wire all of the cryogenically mm-hmm. preserved telepaths that the uh, shadows were getting ready to work on, wires them into the wires them into uh, Earth Force ships. So he's literally using those telepaths as weapons. And then, you know... Sheridan's uh, real politic is really problematic when it comes to telepath relations. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah, I th- he sees them as tools. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. I think he sees individual telepaths as individuals with agency. Um, although he really comes down on Lita with a ton of bricks in season five, but uh, but yeah, and he is a problematic fave to borrow a. Uh, current meme on twitter almost <laughs> yep Has- hashtag not all captains <laughs> uh, <laughs> almost any other instance of ba- on babylon 5 of trying to use a telepath to get information that is privileged out of somebody else's head would lead to a lengthy debate uh, and usually a refusal but certainly a lengthy debate and one of the things that i did wonder while i was watching this episode is the fact that we don't have it like no. lita just appears and maybe a conversation. And they, and they stick off. a bag over the guy's head. They stick yeah. a bag well, over so his head. So he can't identify her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like this show has been consistent in discussing the ethics of this before. And maybe that happened off screen, but it really just sounds like they called Lead Up and she's like, sure, whatever. I'll do whatever you want to find this this missing monk who's in trouble, which well, I don't know. The show is. Well, she's she already established that points. she's going. She's out, she may have been feeling like she was, you know, sort of paying back a favor. I mean, they did. You know, they helped her when she came to Babylon 5 before and helped her get off station and escape the Psycor. Yeah, so she may that. be simply, you know, figuring that, you know, this is something, yeah, they helped me, I should help them. She um, has already is, established that she is perfectly willing to put a forever nightmare into Londo's head as yeah, revenge. That's true. But also, I think I agree with Erica how, you know, Sheridan's actions are beginning to shift. I mean, and I think, you know, part of it... Um, the discovery of um, Morden 
would have been a huge turning point because, you know, there's where the first point where, you know, he asks Talia, will you please scan this guy? And she, of course, says no. What does he do? He makes sure that she's near enough to get a reaction. You know, that's totally underhanded. And that is treating the telepath like a, a tool that, you know, the tool may object, but damn it, I need to know. And, and, she, and she slaps the, the hell the out of him. Yeah. And he had it coming. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But this so. is a different. Th- Talia is not Talia is not Lita. Lita at no. this point has no compunctions. And three years from now, she's going to be setting up a telepath revolution, leading to a telepath war that we don't get to see on screen, but gets mentioned in passing um, in Crusade down the road. Indeed. So this episode is actually... <laughs> talk about spoiler fodder. This, this episode actually sets up the telepath war. Yeah. Woo. I am dropping the mic, except it's on a boom arm. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. But what does Byron think of all this, Chip? Oh, jeez. Jason, why'd you have to go there? <laughs> it's Chip. He, it's his fault. Do we need to bring in Jason for Phoenix Rising? I'm just asking. <laughs> I, 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 You are going to test my friendship if you bring me in for season five. <laughs> I'm just saying. Fair enough. Who dies? Okay. When somebody dies, sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we do thank Jason Snell for coming and playing with us again as we continue watching our way through all five seasons of Babylon 5. Uh, again, the next episode that we are going to cover will be Voices of Authority. And until next time, this is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.